Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. So with us today is uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Nathan Stuckey. Uh, Nate Stuckey serves as the director of the Farminary at Princeton Theological Seminary. He grew up on a farm in Kansas where his love for Christian faith and agriculture first took root. After earning a BA in music from Bethel College, Stuckey spent six years doing ecumenical youth ministry on the eastern shore of Maryland and two years farming back in Kansas. After farming, Stuckey earned an MDiv and a PhD in practical theology with Christian, focusing Christian education and formation from Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, his scholarship focuses on exploring questions of land, ecology, theology, agriculture, justice, joy, and Sabbath as they relate to theological education. He's the author of Wrestling with Rest, Inviting Youth to Discover the Gift of Sabbath, Ordained in the Mennonite Church USA, Stuckey engages farminary work as integral to his calling to teaching ministry. He lives in Princeton, New Jersey with his spouse and three children. So thank you for, for being here with us today. My privilege. So we have uh, a few questions for you, and then we'll also invite others to ask questions too. Um, but to start out, uh, I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience growing up on a farm in Kansas, uh, where your bio read, your love for Christian faith took root. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us about the faith of your childhood and how that relates to your faith today. Uh, well, sure. Um, if I'm this close to the mic, can you all hear? Is it coming through all right? Great. Just making sure. Um, that the, the, it, It's a deceptively uh, large question. Tell us about the faith of your childhood <laughs> and how it compares to your faith today. Well, how much time do we have? Um, uh, Zach did generously uh, share the questions in advance, so I had a, a minute to, to reflect on this. And um, um, so, so I, my bio also mentioned I'm ordained in the Mennonite church. Uh, so, so born, raised, ordained Mennonite both sides of my family back many generations are Mennonite um, and Mennonite farmers. Uh, um, so that's uh, uh, kind of a core building block of, of who I am. Um, and, you know, the, the Mennonite tradition um, has its kind of core values of being part of the peace tradition and interpretation of scripture kind of through the lens of Christ, whether you're reading the old Testament or the new Testament, you're reading it through that lens. Um uh, high value on the on the community. The kind of, the community is the sacrament in some ways for the non sacramental uh, uh, Mennonites. Um, so that's all kind of the water I'm swimming in. Um, my parents, uh, in some ways, though though they're sort of many generations of Mennonite, um, they were really kind of influenced by the Jesus movement of the of the 1970s. So Jesus was a big deal growing up. Jesus and the Bible were a big deal. Um, uh, it's also true uh, that. Um, and I and I was trying to say this as as diplomatically as possible because I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but um, there was a lot of talk about the rapture when I was a kid, uh, which um, uh, which which influenced me uh, a, a good bit. 
And for me, the the moment of uh, or the season of my life when faith became super important uh, was when I was 11 years old. It was the summer between my fifth grade and sixth grade years. And um, and I would just say I, I had this sense that God was after me and not not in a foreboding sense, really, but in a sense of like. I'm here, follow. Uh, and, and so what's, so, so the other part of the question about like, how's your face now different than when, when you were a kid, that, that rapture business was kind of a cloud over my childhood. There was a lot of anxiety about this, right? Like, is, is Jesus going to come back and I'll be the last one, you know, and there goes everybody else. Um, the, the way, one way that my faith is significantly different now than it was as a kid and i'll and i'll 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 preface this by saying i'm still pro heaven i'm 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 into heaven i think heaven is is going to be great um however one of the ways that i think that that rapture theology warped my sense of what christian faith was is that the the sort of not so subtle assumption of rapture theology is that the aim of christian faith is otherworldly the whole point of christian faith is to get you out of here Right. If you do Christian faith right, then then you're going to get transported away from this world. And um, uh, by sort of reinterrogating my own agricultural roots and through the work that we've been doing at the farm and area for the last seven years, and through like uh, encountering the Christian tradition through that lens, um, I just think that that whole notion that the point of Christian faith is to get us out of this world is is fundamentally misguided. Um, and I see it like in something as simple and as basic as the Lord's prayer, where a central component of this prayer is that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a trajectory to that prayer that isn't getting people out of here. It's, it's inviting God's kingdom to come and be among us, um, here now in, in this place. Um, also, uh, you know, very influenced by, by Bonhoeffer in that, um, that that's kind of, that's how I read the whole sort of essence of Bonhoeffer's ethic. It's like um, faith doesn't take you out of the world. It takes you deeper into it. Um, I'm deeply compelled uh, by that. So there's a, a snapshot. Yeah. More that could be said. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say more. So um, thinking about, you mentioned the farmini, farminary. Yeah, get it What's right. a farminary? <laughs> farminary. Yeah. Uh, so a farminary. So if you take farm and seminary and smash them together, then you get a farminary. Uh, and so the farminary is, is a 21 acre farm that Princeton Seminary owns, uh, where we are integrating, uh, theological education with small scale regenerative agriculture. Uh, so it's a, it's a living farm, um, uh, very small scale, especially by Kansas or Texas standards. Um, but, um, courses happen out at the farm. Seminary students are out there at the farm, hands in the soil, taking care of that space and thinking about how that space uniquely shapes us um, for service in the world, for uh, ministry, for leadership. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know how long, I, I can go quite a while on this question. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll do this. I'll at least say um, three undergirding convictions for this project. Um, so conviction number one for the farminary is that um, if you look at the things that a good farmer or gardener or agrarian knows how to do, that skill set broadly overlaps with the skill set of a good leader in a church or a nonprofit or 
a neighborhood. So knowing how to pay attention to seasons, knowing how to tend life, um, understanding the interconnectedness of life and death, knowing how to persevere through failure, knowing how to do a budget, understanding limits, patience, perseverance, like all these things are pastoral in both senses of the term. And and the farm uniquely shapes those that kind of skill set within us. Uh, uh, so that's conviction number one. Conviction number two um, is that there are um, there are, are convictions, there are teachings of the church that we have been uh, offering to students at the seminary since it was founded in 1812 that come to life uh, uh, or are, are, are kind of made three-dimensional in the farm, at the farm. So since the seminary's beginning, we have been teaching students that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. We have no intention of stopping that teaching, but that conversation happens differently uh, in a garden as compared to in a lecture hall or a seminar room. And that doesn't mean you can't do good work in the lecture hall or the seminar room. It just means that if you let the garden, if you let creation participate in that conversation, the broader creation participate in that conversation, um, you, there, there's just all kinds of stuff that comes to light. And I can tell stories if you would like illustrations. Uh, uh, and then the third conviction undergirding the farminary is that if we're listening carefully to the land, um, where that that 21 acre um, bit of land, it is challenging us, provoking us to wrestle with some of our most uh, vexing contemporary challenges. So everything from ecological crisis to um, all the systemic injustices of the world um, uh, to um, some very troubled histories. Uh, so one of one of my uh, stories there is we we know this woman, Nancy Miller, who grew up uh, basically on this farm. I mean, her family didn't farm it, but but she lived in the house right next to this farm. It was a sod farm back in the days, and her brother uh, loved to to follow the plow of of the sod farmer, and he had a knack for finding Native American artifacts. And the first time I met Nancy Meller, uh, we're sitting on, out on her back porch, and she's like, just a second. She goes inside, and she brings this box out, and it's a box of these Native American artifacts that her brother had collected from the land where the farminary now sits. So that's, that's as far as I can tell, uh, part of what that is, is the land asking us to wrestle with a really difficult story. Uh, this recognition that we are by no means the first inhabitants of this land, and those who had been there for many, many millennia before us are not there anymore. And the church plays a part in that story, and settlers play a part in that story. And um, I don't have the answers to all the questions that are raised by those stories, but uh, there is this conviction that we have a responsibility to wrestle with those those kinds of questions. So that's Harmonary in a nutshell, three undergirding convictions. Uh, I'll stop there. It feels significant that that's how people engaged in theological education are um, being shaped and, and, and nurtured and um, wrestling with all of those things and, and that those convictions are part of it. But the Harmonary also has uh, things that are open to more people than just future um, pastors or those engaged in formal theological education. There's some community tie-ins to that as well. Is that right? It is. It's true. Um, so yeah, it's it's another sort of rewarding aspect of the farminary journey is just discovering uh, or learning to meet all kinds of people who are interested in the kinds of questions that the farm raises. Um, and so we, you know, throughout the growing season, we have a, a weekly open farm time when anybody can come and help take care of the garden. We also regularly uh, host church groups or school groups or um, um, 
just folks from the community who who are curious about what's happening there or who have learned about it and 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 want to participate um uh we with some regularity have continuing education offerings um uh we're doing a course uh this semester on uh wine and the bible um uh which is a combination of of graduate students and and community students and we meet in the barn on Thursday evenings and uh, learn about wine and the Bible. And I don't know what kind of Baptist church this is. <laughs> and there's wine tasting. Uh, so, uh, uh, but it's, so that's, that's fun. We're only like an hour and 15 minutes away. So yeah, yeah, yeah. interested yeah. potential students. We, I'll say we, we've actually done uh, uh, occasionally like these one-off wine and the Bible nights because churches will find out and like, well, hey, could we kind of, you know, as a congregation do this for an evening? Uh, so, you know, <laughs> call to action right there. Uh, but it's, it's, it's fun. And, and it's, you know, um, uh, if you do that, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and give the spoiler alert now, but I think it's, it's, it's been, um, one of the kind of revelations of this journey that I could have never anticipated when, when we started. Um, so there was no alcohol in the house where I grew up, um, uh, there may or may not be now, mom and dad. I don't know if you're listening. Um, uh, but, but so, so like it, there was, it's just been a, this whole vast education. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, scripture is pretty clear about like, uh, moderation and, and attentiveness to responsibility and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus first miracle is turning water into wine. Um, and, and wine shows up in scripture from beginning to end. Uh, and so how do we how do we think about this? And then, of course, there's the whole Last Supper thing where Jesus is offering bread and wine and saying, this is take and eat. This is my body. This is the blood of the new covenant. So uh, uh, so I've learned just the very basics about some wine stuff. And uh, and and when wine is made in the traditional way, of course, you have grapes and the first thing, well, you harvest the grapes. Then the next thing you do is you crush them. Right. You're, you're kind of like taking the life right out of them. But within hours, uh, the wine begins to, to, to ferment because of the yeasts that are on the skins of the grape, but then they have access to the sugars as soon as they're crushed. So Jesus is offering his disciples wine saying, this is the blood of my new covenant. And within that wine is already this rhythm of, of life, death, and new life. Uh, I don't think that's accidental uh, with the crushing and the bringing back to life through the yeast and then offering it to Jesus followers as like uh, a sign of, I think, both the the um, take up your cross, but also this uh, this hope of, of glory uh, ultimately. So it's, you know, the the, um, uh, the one of the ideas in a nutshell is like there's just more going on here than we realize. There's more going on ecologically. There's more going on agriculturally. There's more going on in the bread and the wine than I ever thought of. Uh, um, when I was worried about the rapture as a kid. Yeah, and we might we might come back to that. Um, your experience as a kid or the farminary um, or the wine, we'll see. Uh, but I want to ask you about something else next before then we'll open up to Q&A in a bit. But when I first met you, uh, you were researching and writing and teaching uh, and dissertating about Sabbath and youth ministry. And we mentioned in your bio that that became a book, Wrestling with Rest. So for those who maybe haven't encountered your, your work yet or um, have thought about um, Sabbath in the ways that you have, um, what drew you to give it some sort of sustained attention? And I'm um, also linking it to young people. Yeah. Um, 
I always find this a challenging question, and and it's like how how was it that I got into this question of of Sabbath Sabbath and young people, and um, for me it wasn't like an aha moment. I think it was a, an accumulation of lots of things throughout uh, my life. One of my earlier memories that I now associate with like this longer Sabbath journey is there was a farmer um, uh, in our community uh, who. Uh, all the other farmers kind of looked sideways at. Uh, I, I think he was relatively successful, but people looked sideways at him because his uh, philosophy of farming was that you only farmed between eight and five. And and his thing was, if you can't get it done between eight and five, you're trying to do too much. And I remember like as a, I don't know, 11 or 12 year old kid thinking like, that is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Uh, and But also being sort of like, kind of mesmerized like really can can you do that because the farmers i knew although they were they, they were certainly never farming on sunday even during harvest and planting that wasn't a thing but this notion that like somebody would set some boundaries around this work um was kind of mind-boggling to me so anyway so so that's a piece of it um and then uh uh fast forward to um to college and uh i was very active on college campus um you know, started out as a double major and uh, lots of involvement in extracurriculars. But I, there was a sense there that um, I think I can only attribute to maybe some mentors that I had in high school and the work of the spirit. But but there was a sense that um, it really mattered that uh, I made time for my own worship life and the worship life of the community. So no matter how, what was going on, we had a, there was like a, a Wednesday evening or Thursday evening uh, worship service. There was daily or a couple times a week chapel. And it was just like a discipline to go. And there was that sense of like, uh, just that that was more important than whatever the assignment was or whatever the other thing was, or, or, or that like, um, yeah, there, there was, there was just kind of this sense that I don't even really to this day know how to put into words that to, to prioritize that stuff was was not necessarily to compromise the other stuff and maybe it was to even put the other stuff in its place um uh and so then then fast forward again and out of college i end up doing youth ministry on the eastern shore of maryland and and i don't know if if people have experiences with the delmarva peninsula um but it has been said and i think it's true to this day that um you cross over the chesapeake bay bridge and all of a sudden you're in a different time uh, like and and time functions in a different way on the eastern shore um the the folks were, i mean we were almost all the way down to the virginia border um and uh that community had a sense of time that um that prioritized neighbors and generosity in a way that was truly beautiful and i and i kind of had a sense of it while we were there it became um even more vivid to me when we moved to Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> and the understanding of time in Princeton, New Jersey was very different. Uh, and it was, it was the, the, the pace was, was rapid. And there was that set. I mean, I, again, it wasn't that anybody told me this, but I have this, this memory of being in my, in our CRW apartment, the student housing. And, um, and I don't, I don't know if it was a Saturday afternoon or what, but I'm standing in our living room and there's like our, our, our uh, window out to the street. And I see somebody walking down the street 
with her backpack. And I instantly feel anxiety, like, oh no, I'm I'm supposed they know something they're supposed to do, and I haven't figured out what I'm supposed to do, and I'm behind, right? And I like I think it was like somehow inherent to the place, right? That 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 pace and that like, well, no, you gotta be getting stuff done, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go. And so somehow all of that led to these questions of of Sabbath and uh and and rest and faith and um uh and and then you know and and so then the the youth piece of it was like um having the experience doing youth ministry in maryland where it wasn't the like oh these kids are so maxed out and i mean they had stuff going on um but it wasn't you would think it would be like well these kids are just completely maxed out and then i'm like i gotta write this dissertation um i think it was more uh intrigue of like no i i i saw that way of being in the world and the kids um um in some ways we're doing better though the county where we lived uh was was exponentially closer to the poverty line than the one i now live in and these kids um the rates of anxiety and and uh uh stress and all these kinds of things are kind of off the charts and so how do we make how do we make sense of that um so that kind of led uh to to the sabbath work um, and, and my curiosity about, and my convictions about the Sabbath, um, persist to this day. It's another one of those kind of subject matters where like, there's more going on there than, than I realized. Um, so yeah, that says a lot about how I got into it and basically nothing about what I believe about it, but maybe that's what you want to ask next or great. not, I, whatever. <laughs> well, I, I do have a question about about belief, but what what I want to ask about in particular is it seems like a thread throughout all of these experiences that you're describing and the things that interest you is this level of anxiety that sort of pervades um, the church or society or the youth that you're caring about, the environment you're learning in. Here's this like sort of ang anxious energy that's a part of that. And then here's Sabbath and here's um tending to the land and caring for the caring for the earth and um these sort of responses in some ways to anxiety are those related and and i guess what i would add on to that is um working with with young people or, or working in churches for the past few years i just think that and being a person <laughs> i just think that anxiety has gone up so much in both in the clinical sense but also in the sense of uh, people are really worried about things. And what would we do with our worry as people of faith? Yeah. And how does that connect to Sabbath? Am I supposed to have an answer for that? I would love, love to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what do we do about anxiety? Yeah. Is that really a problem? Um, um, yeah, I feel more anxious thinking about it. Uh, so, well, a, a couple of things. Uh, my research interests, uh, I think, are dangerous. I'll I'll say that. So, so one way of articulating my research interests, and they're sort of listed in the, in the bio there, but I'm very interested in questions around land and ecology, and uh, and Sabbath, um, and lots of other things. But those are like, if you go land and Sabbath, two huge questions. The reason, one of the reasons that those are dangerous research interests is that they are almost equally susceptible to people's romantic notions of them. So people have their romantic notions of life lived close to the land. People have their romantic notions of what Sabbath could be or should be or is or something like that. 
and I think that those romantic notions um, um, are destroying us, actually, and they're destroying the world. Um, and 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 part of the reason I, I think that is um, <laughs> uh, they tend to emit um, um, all too frequently from people who have gotten just close enough to Sabbath and just close enough to the land to sort of be enamored with it. But my experience, and I think the experience of the farmers that I know and the people I know who have tried to take Sabbath seriously is that if you get close enough to those things, um, they will devastate your romantic notions. And, and so like on the, on, on the Sabbath side, um, the, Part of my dissertation work was with uh, this cohort of 39 seniors in high school. All of them identified as Christian. All of them went to this Christian high school. And I was unpacking this question with them. How do they understand and experience rest? And so uh, through focus groups and interviews and these time diaries and other methods, they ultimately defined rest with reference to anxiety, stress, and worry. So something was more likely to qualify as rest if it reduced their anxiety, stress, and worry. So if Netflix reduces anxiety, then yeah, I think that that qualifies as rest. If playing an instrument reduces my stress, that qualifies as rest. So that that kind of makes sense. Uh, maybe kind of a dark understanding of rest, but I, I can go with that. But as we continued to unpack their understandings and experiences, they went on to confess this cruel irony. And the cruel irony was that um, on one hand, they longed for rest. They recognized they were exhausted and they 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 craved a rest that could reduce their anxiety, reduce their sense of stress and pressure in the world. The irony was that when they actually tried to rest, rest created its own anxiety. And so, you know, these were these were kids of the Northeast, uh, Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, as it turns out. Um and um uh, or eastern pennsylvania i should say um uh and like they come from these industrious hardworking families that know how to get stuff done and so the challenge of rest is that it calls that whole identity into question because you stop to try to rest and then all of a sudden you're all you can think about is the stuff you're not getting done um so uh so my my sort of general sense of of um the church and i mean this is a wild generalization so you'll have to go and test it against real people um which in some ways i already did but you should do it too um <laughs> but the general sense of, of of rest is that if if we're willing to go far enough down that road eventually um we're going to bump up against some pretty serious anxiety and and struggle uh, because I think the question of rest calls into question some basic assumptions about who we understand ourselves to be. Who are we? We are hardworking, industrious, Protestant work ethic, you know, yeah, whatever. All these things, that's how we tend to define ourselves. So to stop is is to question all that. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor uh, says that, that Sabbath is a practice in death because in and through the Sabbath, productivity dies. And when productivity dies, we don't even know who we are anymore. Uh, but but uh, uh, the hope, though, in that is that if we're willing to go through that, we're willing to 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 journey through 
that death, that death of productivity, the questions that run to the core of our identity, there is a possibility of another identity on the other side. And uh, and as far as I can tell, that's that's an identity that's rooted in something other than what we can achieve or accomplish. Rather, it's rooted in what God has already achieved and what God has already accomplished, uh, which is to say, you know, it's an identity that's rooted in in God's grace. Um, so the, the ecology thing, uh, the ecology, agricultural, um, close life, close to creation thing there, too. Right. Like. Um, um, so we're seven plus years into this pulmonary journey. Um, there's been ups and downs all along the way. Uh, a year ago uh, in the fall, we're super excited because after uh, six and a half years, we're going to integrate the farm and campus dining. So we've been planning for this whole thing. Fall of 21, we're going to launch this, this integration. Every All the produce that's coming out of the farm is going to dining. People are going to be able to eat pulmonary produce right in the dining hall. And and we're ecstatic. September first, the night before classes start that fall, the remnants of Hurricane Ida come through, which you may recall, and uh, um, and we experienced flooding that surpassed what we experienced in Superstorm Sandy. Uh, we lost two thirds of our poultry. The entire garden was submerged by FDA standards. Anything that comes into contact with floodwaters is considered contaminated because you don't know what's in the floodwaters. And um, the days that follow, we're, I'm at the farm with students and community members and faculty, and we're weeping because of this loss. There's nothing romantic about standing on the farm after your crops have been dev devastated by flood or after the fox got into the hen coop or all these kinds of things. So, so it's, um, it's curious to me that I, and I don't, maybe it's my own sick pathology that I'm drawn to these two things that tend to be romanticized. Um, um, but I think there's still something there. And so then there's these questions about how do we work through these romantic notions to something? Um, I think behind the romantic notions, there's a, there's this abiding sense that no, there is something there when it comes to rest, when it comes to our connection to the broader creation. Um, but but we're not even sure how to think about it or talk about it. And um, um, But if we're not willing to go through, I think, the de-romanticizing and let our sort of romantic notions fall away, um, I think we're just going to be frustrated by it. But anyway, what was the question? I don't remember, but it sounds like you answered it. When you're talking about that, that loss of either the self you thought yourself to be or maybe even the church we thought ourselves to be like this sabbath as dying as practicing death or engaging in these things and having to let go of the romanticized version there's loss there and so i'm wondering as you as you've facilitated these conversations of talking about to people about sabbath or uh ecology when I think about climate anxiety and the the grief that people have for what hasn't been done or what feels you know inevitable, what what do you do with that grief that's there? Even though there's something mm -hmm. on the other side, mm -hmm. the loss is still here now mm -hmm. before people can fully grasp those realities. And there's beauty ahead, but there's grief now. Yeah. How what have you learned about the grieving that has to take place as part of that? Um we resist it too, right? We we would rather numb ourselves with our to-do lists and uh, 
our, you know, insatiable appetite for whatever the next thing is, whether it's, uh, I mean, whatever it is. Um, um, and um, well, let me let me pull another thread here and see if I can bring it all together. So another thread that runs, I think, through Sabbath and through some of the ecological stuff um, is that it can also get prone to like uh, it could we we can tend to reduce it to like a, a, uh, sort of this individual thing. So on the ecological land side, you know, it's like the the, the rugged individual, the like um, uh, the um, off the grid. Uh, there's there are good things to these kinds of impulses as well. But it can also come off as like you know the the sort of the American dream of the rugged individual who who secludes themselves and is completely self-sustaining and all this kind of stuff and they're on their own even though they're not on their own because you know there's soil and trees and plants and animals and everything else. Um, but then on the, on the Sabbath side, they're there too. Like it's really easy to imagine Sabbath as this individual practice. Like I just need to have my Sabbath time every week and I and I'm going to be good. There's not a single instance that I know of in all of scripture where God gives Sabbath to an individual. It doesn't happen. That's that's not the thing. The Sabbath is always given to the community. It's given uh, uh, to the whole creation, I would say, on the seventh day. It's given to the people of Israel uh, in, in the wilderness after they leave uh, Egypt. It's given, you know, to the whole the whole community um, uh, through the Ten Commandments, it's given to the whole or the whole the, to the land and the people through the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee. It's rest for the people. It's rest for the land. Uh, Jesus is never alone on the Sabbath, uh, except for Holy Saturday, uh, when Jesus is is in the tomb. Otherwise, Jesus is always with people. So, so for us to treat Sabbath as if it's this thing we can do on our own is to completely zap it of its power. And it's to put it on, I think, like totally tenuous ground theologically. So, so we're up against all kinds of like um, uh, deep ruts of dysfunction or bad theology or destruction or doom, whatever. We can keep going. <laughs> uh, 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 but, but the patterns of our society are like, go do your thing on your own. And that has bled into the church. Like, go have your faith on your own. Uh, and and so, so my question it ties into the grief thing and that like, what does it look like for people to rest as a community? What does it look like to rest in the company of creation? Um, so, so, uh, and, and then what does it look like? Okay. So hold on. <laughs> what does it look like to rest, uh, in community? And can we define community as inclusive of more than just humans? So what if the whole creation is part of our community, which it must be, we just nourished our bodies with the fruits of creation. The fruit of creation is all around us already. So what if we embraced uh, Sabbath as this time of communion that involved all creation, including humans and God? That looks to me like a snapshot of the seventh day, looks like a snapshot of the end of the book when it's you know, the river that flows from the throne and there's a tree that grows on both sides and it bears fruit every month and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And for millennia, uh, you know, theologians have been saying the end of time is like the eternal Sabbath. So so if we can embrace rest as something that should never be done alone, but can be done with the whole community and assume that God is part of that and the whole creation is part of that, then we have a chance. 
because the forces that are up against it are just too strong. Uh, you know, I look at my own kids uh, who are 13 and 15 and 19 now. Uh, there is no way they have have the willpower to resist the go, go, go of society on their own. And I would never ask them to. That is, that's not fair to them. Uh, it's not fair to any human being. So how is it that we draw ourselves together? And then when we draw ourselves together and we enter into that rest and we recognize all the ways it messes with us and causes us anxiety and we look and, and then we're in communion with the broader creation and we recognize that it too, as Paul wrote millennia ago, is groaning, uh, longing for redemption. Then, then we have a space to actually grieve. Because there too, like that grief can't be an isolated thing. And uh, I think we have so much to learn from Native communities. I think we have so much to learn from um, the Black church uh, and, and, and other communities where the whole notion of grief is, is, um, uh, uh, is something that calls forth the, the, the whole being. It's, it's a fully embodied practice. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll share one more quick snippet and, and then I'll be quiet for a second. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm influenced by, uh, this indigenous author named Martin Prechtel. He wrote a book called the smell of rain on dust. Um, and, uh, he's not coming from a, a Christian theological framework. And I still think he's saying some true things. Um, the subtitle of his book is, um, grief and praise. And he makes this argument that grief and praise are two sides of the same coin because uh, we only grieve the things that we love uh, when they are lost. And so it's in some sense to grieve something is to also praise the goodness of that thing. And according to practical, to practical, um, we are all born with the ability to grieve. Uh, he says, when we come out of the womb, there's that first, like, fully embodied, whole self wail. And it is the wail of grief for the loss of the first home. So we all know we are born with the ability to grieve with our entire being. And then we are socialized out of it. So the question is, what would it look like for the church to be willing to enter this foreign territory known as rest? This foreign territory known as, as a sort of explicit connection with creation in which we will be up against other kinds of grief and then be able to grieve with our whole selves that which has been lost in praise of that which is good and in the hopes that redemption is still possible. Um, that's, uh, that's really hard work, um, but there's a vision there of vitality and joy um, that I don't think we're going to get to it, uh, unless we're willing to do some some heavy lifting as far as grief and um, and coming to terms with you know our romantic notions of things that can prevent us from from some deeper truths. We have uh, other questions that I can ask, but I want to open it up for now. Um, and just to be charitable to people who will listen online or who will listen later, I'll just ask that you ask the question into this microphone so I can hand it off to you if you have questions. Um, so what question, Brittany? So you already touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could 
talk more about what the role of nature in Sabbath and rest is. I know you talked about, you know, nature being a part of creation and all of us, not just humans, but thinking collectively about um, creation and including nature in that. But what is the role of nature in Sabbath and the practice of Sabbath? Yeah. Um, well, so one place to start is to say, like, we don't have anywhere else to rest. Right. Like there's no, we can't go anywhere else than rest. So, it, so, so I think it's, it's um, a place to start is, is to just cultivate that awareness that wherever we are, we are in creation and, and maybe we're in a church building surrounded by, you know, the fruits of nature also. Um, um And then I think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't have this all worked out, uh, to be clear. I don't have any of this worked out. Um, it's an ongoing journey. Um, but I, 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 I'm drawn to the many images in scripture where it's, it's God and humans and the broader creation as part of the Sabbath imagery. So the seventh day is a prominent one. The sabbatical year is another one. The jubilee year um, is another one, and then you know the whole sort of image at the in the last chapter of Revelation. Um, was the question the role of nature in Sabbath or the place of nature, or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just for the recording, um, the role of nature, importance of nature uh, in in Sabbaths. Well, uh, uh, so one thing to say about our ability to to tear those things apart, um, which I think functionally is kind of what we have done, is is we don't necessarily put Sabbath and creation in the same bucket, um, and and. I think we know enough now to know that that is um, destroying us and it's destroying creation. Um, so, so uh, one thing I would like to learn uh, with lots of help from others is how would it transform our relationship with creation, the broader creation, if we brought those things together if we brought rest and creation together and look lo lots of people already do this intuitively uh they they find time in creation to be a, a restorative place to be a place of um of rejuvenation um and so i like i think there's seeds of it there already um but i also want to say that that um that willingness to sort of in engage intentionally with the broader creation through rest um is is still it still needs to push back against our romantic notions right so like what is it what would it look like to go to um um a deserted place or or um um a um a rundown neighborhood as part of God's creation and just be there. So, so I think part of the ethic that I, that I, that I think can emit from a, a, a greater Sabbath sensibility is, 
a willingness just to pay attention in a different way, um, to be with a place and a space without having to impose our agenda on it, without having to bring our theories to it, but to just stop. I mean, so the roots of the word Sabbath literally means to stop. So, so to be in creation, uh, wherever it is, and just stop and pay attention, which then inevitably is going to put us into, um, uh, it's going to confront us with the wounds that are already there, uh, both ours and creations. Um, so, so I think, I think it's, it's, there's, there's beauty and there's pain that's going to emerge from that part of the beauty is going to be like, creation is still amazing. It's still just mind boggling. Um, and the wounds are real and many of creation's wounds are human inflicted. And, uh, and so are we willing to like sit with that? Um, so, so I would love to think that if we put those things together, we could come up with responses to these wounds that would be more imaginative, more creative, um, more faithful because we resist our impulse to be like, well, if there's a problem, let's solve it. <laughs> you know who, who, what what research can we do what person can we ask and we're just going to solve it and 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 the thing that that does is that it's is that it sidesteps grief <laughs> and i think that like the true joy and the true vitality is going to have to take us through grief so maybe now i've talked myself into a, the answer i would like to give to your question which is perhaps the potential of putting those things together is that we can enter into the the a quality of grief that holds within itself the possibility of healing for ourselves and for the broader creation whereas if these things are separate um there's just a there's just a quality of integration that's that's not possible a because like the separation is always a fiction anyway since we're creatures within creation so to put those things together in, uh um intentionally um may may uh open open the the paths for a quality of grief that could lead to healing. Um, thank you for asking that question. I hope I can remember what I just said. Oh, it's recorded. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, so you started touching on this before, but um, so when you could expand on this, <clears throat> having a strong understanding and respect for Sabbath, what that looks like at a healthy church leadership members ministries, um, I just feel like it's something I'm I'm always sort of sort of wrestling with, right? We try to do a lot here and uh and it's it's all good and I, I love my roles and responsibilities, but um yeah, it's interested to hear yeah, your your take on that. Yeah. Um cheapers, no easy questions tonight. Um all right. <laughs> um so the uh, the the first person that comes to mind with this question is a kid, one of the kids I did the research with um, for my dissertation. I think in the book I refer to him as, well, I won't even say, because I might accidentally call him by his real name. And it's been too, anyway, so there's this kid uh, who is in this cohort of folks I research with. And, um, and part of the research is they're doing seven day time diaries. They're supposed to write down everything they do for an entire week when they sleep, you know, all, everything is supposed to be in there. And, uh, and so I'm reading through his time diary. It starts on a Monday, goes through Sunday. And from Monday to Friday, uh, this kid is in school seven and a half hours a day, uh, as would be typical. He works 26 hours at a part-time job. 
uh, he, I think he was doing an extracurricular. Um, went to youth group on Wednesday night, slept less than six hours a night and gets to Friday evening. I'm like, this kid is going to crash. Like what in the world? Like how, how, he can't keep this up. Get to Friday night in his um, time diary. And on a Friday night, he doesn't go to bed at all. He goes to his youth group lock-in and he stays up the entire night. And I just remember reading this and just being like totally aghast. And and I I mean in some ways, like the the lock-in has been a thing for a while now. But but when when put in the context of this one young person's week, it was like the the, the way the story felt in reading it was like <laughs> um God has given the world and per, and for sure the church the gift of rest and the and the that gift of rest should flow from the church to the world and in this case for this young person it felt like that was the opposite of what was happening and instead the church was trying to outdo the society in the go 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 at its own game right you know oh yeah you can do whatever 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 ah oh, we can stay up all night at church <laughs> and it's just like what are we doing right so i do i i say that to say um yeah, I maybe there was a time and a place when lockins were a good idea. I maybe not anymore. I don't know. Um, but but to say like um again, if if we're gonna take Sabbath at its roots as this invitation to stop, there's a question about how serious are we willing to be about that? And and um, you know, an, an ecological conviction is that healthy things grow and then the growth stops and then they die and that's 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 a healthy pattern right the 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 sort of pattern of 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 late market capitalism is just grow 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 with utter disregard for all this being extracted exploited and consumed in the process so that to say our church is willing to lay their ministry out on the table and say, where is their health and vitality and where is their stuff that needs to die? And there is no healthy ecosystems that, that, um, uh, that exclude death. Um, and <laughs> like the gospel story is not a story that skirts death. Right. Like this is the whole thing. So so my 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 dear friend at the seminary, um, Megan DeWald, who's the uh, director of the Institute for Youth Ministry, she says the church's problem is that it wants immortality and not resurrection. It would rather be stuck on life support and fruitless than to let something die in the hope that new life may yet emit. But that's the core of the gospel. There's no gospel without the resurrection. So the question, like, so in all, so I, I don't, I don't know what to tell this this church about which ministries need to keep going, which need, ministries might need to pass away. Um, but I think like the call to take up the cross is to say anything. Uh, uh, we've got to be willing to put everything on the table. And say, is this is this dimension of our life actually bringing life to our community, to our people, to our neighborhood, um, or is it um, this thing that's just on life support? 
and taking extraordinary resources and bearing no fruit. Um, that those are hard conversations to have because uh, people love their stuff, um, uh, and and that's and that's okay. But but here again, like we're back at the avoidance of grief. We're back at the avoidance of like the that that um, the sort of cycles of of life and death. And and so so what does it look like? I mean, of all of all institutions, right? The church should be good at letting things pass away with hope with hope that de death never gets the last word. Um, so, so I say kudos for asking the question and saying like, are we, are we merely trying to outdo society at the go, go, go? And, and, and is it possible? So, so another, you know, sort of broad conviction is that too frequently the church has been participant in the world's exhaustion more than in its renewal or restoration. And I wonder what would it look like for churches to say, um, no, no, never, let me take it back, R rewind. What would it look like for the communities around churches to say, you know, that congregation, they know something about rest. They know something about renewal. What if the church was known for that? Uh, that, that sounds like good news to me. Uh, so, um, but but there again, like that's ironically enough, like really hard work. Um, um, but if the conviction isn't that resurrection life gets the last word, then we're on, I think we're on the wrong train. So I don't know if that answers your question. Any um, other questions? You stimulated a lot of thought. One of the, with the Kaddish, the Jewish faith, and celebrating or mourning the death of another member, that's always done in community. That's always done with, what is it, 10 or 11 minions? Am I saying that correctly? Uh, so you mentioned, are there models of rest or pausing um, that we can look to? I, animals, for example, um other than us don't miss sleep mm -hmm. they don't miss rest human beings are the only species that say ah, five hours four hours i don't need any i don't need to go eight or ten hours so just tying just thinking about that rest and theologic way you have um, and the question your question yes no that's great I, and maybe that's not a question I'm just putting some things on the table. yeah yeah. Well, and, and I, and what I hear you saying, which again is to your, is to the, the prior question, who knows what we might learn about rest from the broader creation. I mean, we're, look, we're, we're headed for winter. Uh, oh, part of your education of like, welcome to the Northeast. Um, <laughs> like, so part of the beauty of the leaves turning is like, these are trees headed for dormancy. They don't seem to be anxious about that at all, uh, and it's like this this regular rhythm. Um, and yeah, no, I've th th it is a f endlessly fascinating reality that that we know of no other creatures that like consciously resist rest. Um, I mean, maybe in a fight or flight, but that's a kind of a different scenario. And we're like, no, for years we <laughs> will say no to rest um, because we've you know kind of marginalized it, but. Um, yeah, that's a good, it's a good observation.
at, at the uh, among the seminarians who are at the seminary, they take courses. Yes. And are they evaluated by how well their harvest comes at the farm? <laughs> well, uh, assessment is a core category of educational uh, philosophy. And so uh, so there's assessment there as as in any class. Um, but we have yet to fail anyone for, uh, you know, the crops that didn't come up or uh, the the <laughs> the the crops that they pulled thinking they were weeding. Um, uh, so, uh, but yeah, no, there's, there's, there's courses that happen out there, uh, every semester. And, um, this, this semester, there's six different courses, five master's courses and a PhD seminar, seminar, everything from creation and creativity to, uh, wine and the Bible. Um, and, and what type of activity do they have? Or do they do, um, do they do, Quizzes? Do they do tests? Do they do papers? Do they do dissertations? How, how do they inculcate what they're seeking to learn? Yeah. So, so there, there are um, there are dimensions of the courses that happen there that look like kind of any other seminary course. Insofar as there's assigned readings and there's discussion and there are. Um, whether it's journals or or papers or projects or curriculum to be written, um, um, but then these courses also include within themselves, uh, uh, or many of them do, time caring for the farm. So, uh, so for that, it's it's whatever needs to be done in the season. So right now, you know, we got our first uh, hard frost a couple nights ago, uh, fin finished off the peppers and the tomatoes and everything else. So then, you know, the classes that are out there. Um, um, now are going to be clearing that stuff out and and taking care of that um uh so so the some a lot of the outcomes are are the same but it's just saying like w what happens when we let the garden and the practices of the farm sort of be active participants in that broader formation um uh so so yeah th there's a lot of it that that looks somewhat similar it's just that uh instead of classroom in uh in stewart hall we're having classroom in the barn and a follow-up to that, have any former students made contact with you and suggested how what they learned at the farminary um, has been applied or has actually been learned to a deeper depth once they left? Yeah, uh, so it's um, in, in many different ways. Uh, so we've had students go in many different directions, everything from congregational ministry to doctoral studies to chaplaincy to working in nonprofits uh, and on and on and on. I mean, we have a, had a student a couple of years ago went and, and uh, served a Methodist church in Texas and um, led that church into um, uh, starting a ministry with their young people where they were putting raised beds on the church property to grow uh, fruits and vegetables right there on the property. And then that got integrated with their, um, their, their food ministry, which mm. got integrated with other things, which made connections with the broader community. Um, and, 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 you know, to, to be clear, um, uh, the, um, we, we don't have any illusions that everyone's going out to farm. Uh, we're not graduating very many farmers, although we have one or two. Um, 
part of the longer story of the farm and that property is that decades ago it was a sod farm and so if anybody knows anything about sod farming it's notoriously terrible on soil because you can't harvest sod without taking a little bit of topsoil with you when you go so so it was a sod farm for decades so we sort of have are now caretakers of this land that bears the wounds of an exploitive form of agriculture our, part of our responsibility is to care for that land in a different way. Uh, what does it look like for us to care for the land in such a way that vitality is restored instead of compromised? So if there's one skill that I hope our students are learning while they're at the farm, it is that skill. Can you go somewhere and can you exercise the slow patient att attention and affection that helps you understand where the vitality has been compromised in a congregation, in a community, in a neighborhood? And then do you know how to respond in such a way that vitality can be restored? Mm. Um, so that's that's a skill that's applicable all over the place. And the farm kind of just helps us teach that in ways that I think sink down into, into our guts uh, as well as our heads. But, uh, you know, they say we make decisions from the gut. So we're, we're trying to get that formation at that level. Thank you. Sure. So I want to thank everybody for coming this evening. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Nate Stuckey for being with us today. Grateful for you. Um, you can find his book wherever books are sold, presumably, uh, Wrestling with sold. Rest. Yeah. And you can check it out and, and learn more and engage this conversation because there's a lot more to say and a lot more to learn. So, and come uh, visit the Parmenary. That's right. We'll look you up. Well, we're making plans. People here are making plans. <laughs> Love it. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.